Matthew chapter 7, and as you find that, stand. Matthew chapter 7, I'll be reading beginning in verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and many are those who enter by it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and few are those who find it. Beware the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from the thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit but the rotten tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a rotten tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then, you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I'll pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you again, and we thank you for all that you are and all that you have done for us. Thank you that the work that you did on the cross is a finished work. There's nothing for us to add to it. Our sin has been fully paid for. The certificate of debt against us has been canceled. And because of that work, we can stand before a holy God, having been made righteous, justified, and have peace with Him. So we thank you, Jesus, for all that you are, all that you've accomplished. And we ask, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts and that you would be exalted within us as we give our yes to you. And we seek in faith to trust you and to obey you. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> well, I have to say, um, I've been really preparing this week to finish out the Sermon on the Mount and preach verses 13 through 29. But there are really three sermons here, um, and um, so I'm not thinking we're going to get that far this morning. And, um, and I actually, my, my, I don't know, I just have to say, my insides have been pretty stirred up. I don't know whether it's soul, whether it's spirit. Um, and um, it's just a, a passage of Scripture that the Lord has just really been, I, be, I trust, ministering to me and, and bringing to home to me. I'm aware that um, over in Ecclesiastes, where Jeff has been leading us in our adult Sunday school class, um, in chapter 10 of Ecclesiastes, there's a verse that says, um, the wise man makes his words gracious or speaks gracious words. And when you feel strongly about something, um, sometimes you can let the emotions take the way of what God is wanting to say and how he's wanting to say it. But I have to say, when it comes to false prophets and false teachers, as this passage is about, Jesus is not typically very gracious. This is a subject that is very, very dear to his heart and one where, like when he addressed the Pharisees, he minced no words. He didn't have much kindness, graciousness about what he had to say. And the same is true here with false prophets. So he's giving a very stern warning here. 
and one that still is very um, applicable for today. Most of us, if you're my age, you did not grow up in a time where you heard much about prophets, and you certainly did not ever have anyone prophesy over you, um, typically speaking. Most evangelicals never had that experience. Today, if I ask our students at His Hill how many of them have had someone prophesy over them, anywhere from 20 to 50% of the hands will go up. And so it's much more common. When I was in high school, college, if somebody had asked that, um, I don't know, one or two hands might have gone up in a group of 50 or so. But now, as I said, it's anywhere from 20 to 50% of our students will say, yes, I've had someone prophesy over me. So the topic of prophecy is still um, um, important today and seems to be have ga has gained new life. There's one school of thought, one emphasis today that says that we are living in a time of a restored five-fold ministry of the Holy Spirit. And then they explain that for the last couple centuries, um, if not millennia, uh, probably millennia, the church has emphasized pastors, teachers, and evangelists. But now there's a restoration where there's a new era of, of um, prophets and apostles, so making it a five-fold ministry of the Spirit. There are those who say we are in a new apostolic era, and so there are new apostles today, as well as, as those who claim to be um, prophets. So this is a very pertinent passage. Jesus said later, he's going to say in Matthew, that one of the signs that we are approaching the end times is that there will be a rise in prophets, those who claim to be prophets, those who claim even to be Christ. And so again, a very pertinent passage. And so this passage begins by saying there are two gates and two ways. Um, there is a narrow gate and a narrow way, and there is a broad gate and a broad way. And then we're exhorted to enter by the narrow gate. The narrow gate leads to life, and the broad gate leads to, destruct, to destruction. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and many are those who enter by it. Now, I'm just going to make a few observations here following each of these verses, and then I want to just wrap some things up with some other thoughts. So just from this first verse here in verse 13, enter by the narrow gate. This is an invitation. This is um, an exhortation. Jesus is saying, you've got two gates before you. You have two ways before you. One leads to death, destruction. The other leads to life. And so without moving too fast beyond that first word, enter, and the grammatical sense of it is that it is an invitation, an exhortation. Clearly, there is the freedom of choice here that Jesus is assuming that we would recognize, that it is not predetermined which path, which gate that you will enter in and which path you will walk on. If it were, there would be no reason for this invitation or this exhortation. Jesus is saying anyone can choose which path, which gate they're going to be on. The majority will choose the wrong one, but make no mistake, it is a choice. You choose which gate you will enter through. No one will be able to stand before God, I believe, and say, God, I was on the wide, broad path and entered through the broad, wide gate because I was predestined to do so. This would make no sense. 
if that were true. Enter by the narrow gate. I don't know how Jesus could have said it more plainly. It is set before you, a wide gate and a, and a narrow gate, and you choose, Jesus is saying, which one you will be on. Jesus is the gate. Jesus is the way. And Jesus is the life. All three of these terms here, narrow gate, Jesus is the gate, he is the door, John chapter 10. The gate is wide, the way, John chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The way, the narrow way, the narrow gate leads to, what does it say in verse 14? Life. And Jesus is the life. So this is not meant to be academic. This is not um, meant to be um, something that would orient us toward a particular theology. This is personal. He is saying you only enter the kingdom of God through the person of Jesus Christ. That's it. It's not works. It's not church attendance. It is the person of Jesus Christ. And that is the only way. In Acts chapter 14, we're told that there is no other name by which men may be saved. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given by which men must be saved. That is an absolutely exclusive statement. I'm sorry, though I'm not. Jesus would, makes no apologies here. He is saying there is only one way. I hope you sense the authority here as well as the exclusivity. Jesus is saying no one will go to heaven apart from faith in the person of Jesus Christ. And if you don't think that's true, you are, you are risking your entire eternal destiny on a lie. The one who never lied, never gives us any other option. The one who is the truth says this is the truth. There is no other way. No matter how sincere your beliefs may be, if you do not have faith in the person of Jesus Christ for salvation, your sincerely held beliefs are wrong, and they will lead you to hell, to absolute final destruction, where there will not be any remedy. So this is an urgent message. It's the one that I would hope that all of us sitting here today at Bernie Bible Church have heard, we understand, and we have embraced. I also hope that we are teaching our children these things, that our children are hearing us say, there is one narrow gate. And I can't walk with you through this gate. It's that narrow. Any other gate, I would hold your hand and I'd walk with you through that gate. But this is a gate that is so skinny, two people can't get through it. And this is one where you, apart from mom and dad, have to place your faith in Jesus Christ. Or you will be on the broad way. You are entering through the broad gate. And the end is destruction. That is not what I want for you as one who loves you. It is very clear. That destruction will be total, but it is unnecessary. As I've said, it is a genuine invitation to enter by the narrow gate and to walk in the narrow way. Few 
will find that gate. Everybody wants the same thing, life. I believe that with all my heart. Unbelievers want life. The rich young ruler came to Jesus wanting life. Good teacher, tell me how I might obtain eternal life. Do you really know anyone who does not want life? They may become so despairing of life they no longer want to live, but the very reason they're despairing of life is because they want life. Amen? Well, then why don't they enter? The gate's there. There are some who have never heard, many who have never heard. And it is incumbent upon us, uh, those of us who know the name of Jesus to speak of Jesus, especially those who have never heard concerning Christ. But there's another reason why people who want life don't enter through the narrow gate and walk in the narrow way. And I believe it's the passage that came before this one. Ask, and it shall be given to you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened to you. You being evil know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more your heavenly Father wants to give good gifts to those who ask. People are on the broad way, wanting life, but heading to destruction because they refuse to simply come and ask and seek and knock. That's the simplicity of it. Because I believe there is no one that seek, asks, seeks, and knocks that our Heavenly Father, who desires to give good, will not lead that person to Jesus Christ. Using us, He uses human agency every time, is my firm conviction. But God heart, God's eye, 2 Chronicles 16, 9 says, searches the earth looking for the heart that is inclined to him that he may strongly support that person. Ask, seek, knock. This is the message we should give our children. Son, daughter, I love you and I want you to be with me in heaven one day. That is my greatest ambition for you. That you would know Jesus Christ and that we can live eternity together. But you have to approach God. You have to ask, seek, and knock. And I cannot do it for you. This is something you must do. I have friends who um, were one, at one time they were on staff at His Hill and the Lord led them away and in the years after they'd left, they bounced around from one church emphasis or one church extreme, I should say, to another. Sad to see. And where they ended up was in a Catholic church and... Um, they were visiting with an elderly lady, solid Christian, who had come from a very um, Catholic country and was very distressed to hear that this dear, precious family had gone into Catholicism. And so she was visiting with the high school daughter, 17, 18 years old, and 
and just gently, graciously asked her, can you tell me what it means to be a Christian? Just blank stares. This girl who grew up in a Christian home could not explain what it meant to be a Christian. How sad. We were with the grandkids this past weekend and for part of the road trip down to Lake Jackson, we had um, Weston and, and Ford with us. and They're both learning to read. Weston's becoming quite accomplished and he can spell well. Ford at five is, is where most five-year-olds are. And so we were singing camp songs together in the car and um, at least Patsy and the kids were. Um, and so there's that one song, I am a C, I am a C-H, I am a C-H-R-I-S-T-I-A-N. You know the song? And so we sing that, they're singing the song. And then Ford goes, am I one of those? And I'm thinking, yes, this is, this, we're going to be able to lead our grandson to Jesus here. This, this is great. Am I one of those? Well, he was just wanting to know what C-H-R-I-S-T-I-A-N meant. He had, no, he had no idea. He's five. He didn't know what he's singing. Am I Christian? Oh, okay. But this is how it starts. You can go to church your entire life and never have placed your faith in Jesus Christ. You walk through these doors, but you never walk through the one door that matters, Jesus we had a gentleman in our church here years ago in his 80s, was a professional landscape architect most of his life. And he was out here working on this landscaping with my dad one Saturday afternoon. And my dad asked him, has there ever been a time in your life when you have placed your faith in Christ? If you were to die and go to heaven, what would God say? Why should he let you in? And this man in his 80s is saying, I don't know why he would let me in. No, there's never been a time when I have placed my faith in Jesus Christ. And my dad was able to see him come to faith in Christ out here in the lawn on that Saturday afternoon. Incredible. So I do not want to take for granted that everyone sitting here has entered the narrow gate and is on the narrow way which leads to life. And I certainly hope that you are praying and exhorting and inviting your children to place their faith in Christ. Isn't it good to know that it, you, it never has to enter your mind whether or not they are one of the elect? What good parent would hold off on giving the gospel because their child might not be one of the elect. Your assumption is God loves them more than I do. And if I will want my child to be in heaven, certainly God wants them in heaven more than, than I do. And with, with absolute sincerity of heart, because it is the truth, you can invite your children to do what Christ is inviting all of us to do. Enter by the narrow gate. The gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. Few are those who enter it. 
And it's their choice, not Jesus's. Beware of the false prophets. So this is where the prophets come in. Beware of the false prophets. What is a false prophet and how will you know them? They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. So how will you know a prophet? Not by how he looks. Not by how he acts. Because he looks and acts like a sheep. So if that's how you're going to determine who a false prophet is, you will be deceived. So Jesus goes on. And he says, you will know them by their fruits. Ah, fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience. No. That's fruit singular. And Jesus' hearers would have had no idea of what that would have been about because Paul hadn't got written that yet. Fruits. What are those fruits? And then he gives a metaphor, an analogy here. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles are they. Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but the rotten tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a rotten tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits, and the fruits would be their actions. No. They look and act like sheep. So what are the fruits? Go to chapter 12. Verse 33. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or, bring the tr or make the tree rotten and its fruit rotten, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man, out of his good treasure, brings forth what is good. And the evil man, out of his evil treasure, brings forth what is evil. And I say to you that every careless word that men shall speak, they shall render account for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you shall be justified, and by your words you shall be condemned. This parallel passage, 33 through 37, is all about fruit is words. You will know a false prophet by what they say. If you're just looking at their actions, you're not going to see it. Listen to what they're teaching. How does teaching measure up with God's word? It's important at this juncture to look at some other cross-references. If you'll go with me to 2 Peter chapter 2. Second Peter 2, verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you. So they're not the same thing. There are false prophets and there are false teachers. What they have in common is they both teach. The false prophet is claiming to speak directly from God. The false teacher may not be claiming that, but they both are promoting doctrine. They have teaching. They have words. The false prophet is going to say, the Lord said this to me. The Lord revealed this to me. I believe that God speaks to us. I believe that God reveals things to us. 
But I also think we should be very cautious about making that statement. In the little book I showed you a couple weeks ago, Charles Trumbull, Victory in Christ and the Perils of Christ at the end of the book, one of the perils is attaching too quickly, God said to me, God spoke to me, God revealed to me. He says, we would be much better served to show some humility and just say, I believe maybe this is something that God has shown to me, rather than joining God's name on every proclamation that we make. But that's one of the things that false prophets will do. Now, what do we know about them? who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves, and many will follow their sensuality because of them. The way of truth will be maligned. Now, there's a lot there to unpack. In the next verse, it talks about their greed and that they will exploit you with their false words. These, this is so typical of what is happening today. They did not denying the master. They would not deny that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is... They would never deny that. But in the, the, the impact of their words is that Jesus is not master. Something else is. And it may be them and their teachings. So they're not telling you go to Jesus. They're saying you need to go to the prophet. This happens all the time. You don't need to go to Jesus to decide whether you should open a business or not. You need to go to the prophet and get a prophetic word from the prophet, and the prophet will tell you whether to start that business or close that business. You get married, have children, any of that. It's all up to the prophet. And they are speaking authoritatively to every single issue of life that you could imagine. And they are not directing you to Jesus. And in that sense, they are denying the master and taking his place. Following their sensuality. So I asked Siri, what's the difference between sensuous and sensuality? Sensuous has to do with the five senses. Sensual also has to do with the senses, but it, but it gravitates more toward sexual immorality. False prophets have a very subtle way of making you think that life is all about you. Somehow, even though they're, they're saying they're speaking from God and they're saying that this is the work of the Spirit, the net end result makes you think that life is about you. That God wants to promote you, God wants to exalt you, God wants you to live a life of power and not of weakness, a life of, of health and a life of wealth, and it's all about you. Small wonder that sensuality follows after the prophet because in essence what they're promoting is sensuality, not surrender to the lordship of Jesus Christ. One more reference. Turn over to Revelation where Jesus is speaking to the seven churches. His message to Thyatira really brings home what I want to say here. Verse 18 of chapter 2. And to the angel of the church of Thyatira write, the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze says this, I know your deeds and your love and faith and service 
and perseverance, they look like sheep. Wouldn't you expect this of all God's sheep? Faith, love, faith, service, perseverance, and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. But I have this against you. You tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. So in the midst of this church, where there are deeds, there is faith, there is love, there is service, there is a prophetess spinning her lies. The prophetess Jezebel. She teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to, to idols. Sensuality. This prophetess, false prophet spirit that leads you to think that you can just jettison the narrow way. That says, I have to die to myself. I have to take up my cross, deny myself, and follow Jesus. That's so narrow. God doesn't want to cramp your lifestyle. God wants you to flourish. God wants you to have an abundance. God just wants you, to, it's, wants you to just be fulfilled. And very suddenly, this false prophet gives you a message that is a message of destruction. And you've entered the narrow way, but you are no longer on the, you've entered the narrow gate, but you're no longer on the narrow way. You're listening to a false message. I have a friend that I love and consider him a better man than I am. I've been deeply grateful for the time I've had with him. He ministered to me, was an example to me, and I'm thankful for him. He's written a book on revival, which I cannot recommend. In this book, he says, and he, I think I'm, I don't have any argument with the first part of it, with his outline at least. His outline for his book are that there are four tsunamis or four revivals that have taken place and, or are taking place. The first tsunami wave is the wave of what we would today call the Protestant Reformation, where God brought great revival to the church. I can live with that. That was in the 17th, began in the 1500s. The second tsunami wave, and this began with, with um, Wesley in the 1700s and resulted in what we refer to now as the Great Awakening. I can live with that. The third tsunami wave is what would he would call um, Pentecostalism, which arose in the early 1900s. And then the fourth tsunami wave, he calls the wave of apostles' love. Isn't that interesting? Apostles' love. And it started, he says, in 1994 at the Toronto Airport Vineyard Church. Now let me read you about my friend's experience at that church, and I think it was in 1990, no, this is 1994. He was there in that year. 
It was early in March of 1994 when our group arrived in Toronto, merely walking in his group being a group of pastors. Merely walking in the door of the Toronto Airport Vineyard that first night, I found the presence of God was so overwhelming that I could hardly walk to a chair. Nor could I sit down in the chair. I slithered down into it as the power of God rested on me until my head rested on the back of the chair. I don't remember a thing that was said or done during that first meeting. I do remember, however, that in that position I felt physically very uncomfortable, and I didn't have any power to move. At the end of the meeting, an announcement was made, but I could barely make out what they said. I vaguely heard that they were inviting pastors to come to a back room for prayer. Remembering my wife's admonition to take advantage of any prayer call whatsoever, I stumbled to that room in a daze. Seeing a fellow pastor that I knew across the room, I made my way over to him haltingly before falling down completely. He and I, along with about 60 other pastors, stayed in the room for several hours, laughing and crying and trembling in the presence of God. A prayer team from the church made their way through the pastors lying prostrate on the floor, praying for each of us. That week, I saw many unusual things happen around me. People cried, laughed, fell, and shook under the power of God. The floor was covered with bodies lying down in God's presence. Near the end of the week, God threw another surprise my way. A lady prophesied over me about going to the many nations. Even though this had been said over me before, this time the words were accompanied by such power that I was catapulted headfirst about 20 feet through the air horizontally. In that position, I struck a friend of mine from Texas in the chest with my head. He happened to be sitting on the speaker's platform. I then bounced off in another direction, still two or three feet off the floor. After another six feet of flight in the new direction, I landed on my face and remained on the floor, shaking violently for 45 minutes. You might ask, why did God do that? Yeah! <laughs> Only I don't think God did that. But I want to tell you, this dear man, this dear brother in Christ, he told me personally, as he handed this book to me, He's never had such an encounter with the love of God. Sheep's clothing. Isn't this what Jesus said to the church at Thyatira? I know your faith. I know your love. But you tolerate this prophetess Jezebel. How much the church would be guarded if we understood that false prophets will act lovingly. They will act like sheep. They will be gentle. They will be kind, at least on the front end, until you find that you've been exploited by their greed. This writer said, we should expect false prophets to engage in acts of kindness and charity. We should expect them to perform deeds which suggest miraculous powers, and we should expect that these deeds be performed under the pretext of being done by God's power and to His glory. We should expect this. But their teaching does not rest on the authority of God's Word. There is no biblical authority for flying across a room, levitating off the ground, there is no biblical authority for that nonsense. 
I don't know what's doing it, but I know it's not God. It would scare me to running out of the room. And in fact, this same writer says that many people did run out of the room. And he chronicles that in all these different places where it's happening. That many of the people just got up and ran and never came back. But others fell under the presence of love. How can this be wrong when I've never felt so loved in my life? What are they teaching? You won't know them by their actions. They look and behave like sheep. And the enemy of our souls knows the distinguishing feature of Christians. What did Jesus say? They will know you by your what? Love. John 13, 35. So should we be surprised when the deceiver comes presenting himself in love? And it's so easy to deceive the sheep. Not everyone, I'm reading in verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but everyone who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. This is not a question of losing your salvation. These are people who never were saved. I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. An unbeliever can prophesy in the name of Jesus. An unbeliever can cast out demons. An unbeliever can perform miracles. And I'm not saying that all false prophets are unbelievers. But if even an unbeliever can do these things, and they can, then so can a Christian who is ministering as a false prophet. Jesus should be called Lord. There's no fault in that. Lord, Lord, he doesn't fault that. But entrance into the kingdom of heaven is not based on listening to prophets. It is based upon faith in Jesus Christ. And the ultimate work of God is not miracles. It is not casting out demons. It is not even raising the dead. But it is placing your faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. Look at John chapter 6. Verse 29, Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. This is the work of God, believing in him. And these prophets, false prophets, doing all kinds of work, but the one work, faith in Jesus Christ, is not there. Men of lawlessness. What makes a person, well, if they're men of lawlessness, you ought to see lawlessness. But the ultimate lawlessness is disobedience to Jesus because Jesus Christ is our law. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul says, I am not under the law of Moses, but I am under the law of Christ. And this kind of teaching, this kind of prophecy does not bring people back to the person of Jesus Christ and surrender in obedience to him. And it is lawlessness. 
Jesus will be the one who ultimately says, I knew you or I never knew you. Everything has to do with him. False prophets make it about thing, everything but him. The effect of their teaching is a rejection of God's word. I have in my office a book called um, Counterfeit Revivals. And the foreword to the book was written by a pastor in Denver whose church went after this teaching. He also went to Toronto, also came back with the same emphasis in his church. And in a very short time, no one was bringing their Bibles to church anymore. He and the other pastors were no longer preaching from their Bibles. They were preaching words that they were getting from God. But they weren't opening God's word and preaching his word. And he realized the destruction that was taking place in his own congregation, where all these prophetic words that had been given over individuals in his church and virtually none of them coming true and people's lives were being destroyed. He repented. And with his wife and his pastoral staff, he said, we have led this church astray. And he asked for their forgiveness and he says, we are going to go back to preaching God's word verse by verse. And the leader of that movement prophesied and said God would strike him dead. False prophets are known in their subtle rejection of the person of Jesus Christ and the authority of his word. Listen to what they're saying. And if they are not leading you to Jesus... If it's Jesus plus, it is a false message. It is a false teacher. It is a false prophecy. There is no plus. It is Jesus and Jesus alone. Anything else is of the devil. A rejection of God's word, a rejection of biblical authority. The leader of that same movement, he was asked once after a conference, do you believe in the sufficiency of Scripture? And he quickly said, yes, I have this documented in my files. The man standing next to him used to be a, a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, and he was my Hebrew professor while I was there. And he had gone wholesale in following the same movement. But he knew the, the, what was being asked with that question, do you believe in the sufficiency of Scripture? And it took the theologian from Dallas Seminary who said, no, you don't believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. This is what they mean, that the Word of God is the final word, and this is the authority for everything in life, and you need nothing more than what God has said in His Word in the person of Jesus Christ. And he said, well, put it that way, you're right, I don't believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. False prophets reject biblical authority. They bring division among the saints, and they promote a life of sensuality. This is what Scripture tells us. You will know them by their words. I pray that you are not led astray by displays of power or even by displays of love. You will know them by their words. I'll close this in prayer. Lord Jesus, I pray that we will be a people who stay close to you that we will 
be hungry and thirsty for righteousness. That we will call you Lord, Lord, from a broken heart, poor in spirit, where we truly need you. And we're not looking to have our sensual desires satisfied. But we come to you, God, just destitute, broken, poor, and just wanting nothing more than you because there is nothing more than you. I pray, God, that we would be alert to the words that are being said and where they lead. That we would just sense, God, by your Spirit speaking to ours, whether or not those words are leading to the person of Jesus Christ. And if not, that we would not be seduced, deceived, or led astray. We pray, God, for our brothers and sisters, Lord, that we know personally who are caught up in these things, that they would hear the voice of the shepherd and that they would recognize the authority of your word and that they would repent and come back to the one who is truth and whose path leads us only to life. Thank you, O God, for your loving kindness, for your patience, your grace with us. And I thank you for the Holy Spirit who leads us to Jesus Christ. In his name.